in my opinion, <coughs> the Buddha Dharma is about the most profound intellectual and spiritual achievement of mankind. So we're the recipients of the most incredible <coughs> gift. Not only that, we're at a place in our history, mankind's history as a whole, where we absolutely need this kind of depth of understanding and the guidance that it provides, because it's the only thing that is going to save us. So, yeah, we need to under, we need to plumb the depths of the Buddha Dharma, understand it, make it our own, and then find a way to make it available at the level it needs to be available. Not just a few of us here and there practicing on our own, enjoying the benefits of it, but it's got to penetrate our culture and it's got to it's got to have it needs a form that can be assimilated and that in the process of being assimilated changes our culture. It's not just something that some of us do occasionally, you know, once or twice a week on our own in small groups here and there. It's got to penetrate into our culture. And that is what has happened everywhere else that Buddhism has gone. And I have no doubt that, you know, providing the end of the world doesn't come too soon, it will happen with us as well. And we are the ones that are going to make it happen. You may not have thought of yourself in those terms, but we are the ancestors of the generations to come. We are the elders of the future. Think about that. You thought you didn't have anything to do? Okay. <laughs> uh, there's a, a website that you might be interested in looking at. I discovered some interesting material when I was doing some browsing prior to this weekend. There's a website called Juniper, Juniper, juniperpath.org. It's in the hand up there. Is your recorder working right now? Uh, the recorder is now. It wasn't a while ago. <laughs> juniperpath.org. Anyway, there's a quote that I have here from Lawrence Levy. And uh, Juniper is a group of people that are actively engaged in doing what I'm talking about, trying to, to tap into the essence of the Buddha Dharma and put it into a form that can be, uh, that, is, that is appropriate for Westerners. And he says, he wrote, writes, uh, Lawrence Levy writes, we do not see ourselves as inventors of something new but as stewards carrying into our own culture and time an extraordinary methodology for inner development. And that is true. We do not want to think of ourselves as inventing anything new, and we should. 
we need to go back to the original source. There is something there that is so incredibly rich and valuable that it has lasted for two and a half thousand years. And it has enriched the lives of incredible numbers of people worldwide. So we don't want to go in there blindly tinkering, taking a piece of this and a piece of that and making our own better version. What we want to do is get in there and understand what is there in this that makes it so powerful that it has lasted so long and that it has been so successful. But at the same time, we can't be afraid to question and challenge what we are presented with. We have to challenge all of those teachings. We have to question everything. And we have to do it in the way that the Buddha suggested. Not taking things on faith. Here's a, here's a quote from the Buddha. He, he knew we were going to be sitting here tonight. So he said this just to reassure us that, that we, we do need to do this. We have to do this. Do not believe in traditions because they have been handed down for many generations. Do not believe in anything because it is spoken and rumored by many. Do not believe in anything simply because it is found written in your religious books. Do not believe in anything merely on the authority of your teachers and elders. But after observation and analysis, when you find that anything agrees with reason and is conducive to the good and benefit of one and all, then accept it and live up to it. So the Dharma isn't fragile. And so we need to question teachers and teachings. And we need to keep in mind that in other places the Buddha said, he said very simply, he said, don't believe something because I said so. He says, don't take my word for it. He said, I know that you all venerate me and hold me in the highest esteem. But I don't want you to go away and hold on to something just because you heard the words coming from my mouth. You must test it and try it for yourself. And he described the ways in which to do that. One of them is it has to make sense. It has to accord with reason. Not that some things aren't a bit tricky to understand and you might have to work at it. But it must be reasonable. A good test is any teaching you receive, you should be able to explain it to somebody else, or you should be able to explain it to yourself afterwards. There's an interesting thing about the way our minds work. Somebody can take you on a trip in their logic and you'll go along with them step by step, and you'll say, yeah, 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 makes sense, right, right, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, right to the end. But you can't repeat that journey. Or if you go and you or somebody else goes and they take those steps and break them down, you find all over these places there's these non-secretaries, there's these, you know, gaps, these places where the thinking jumps from one to another. And um, any valid teaching makes sense from beginning to end. It's going to be comprehensible. And any teacher that says, well, yeah, this is 
this is, you, you can't really get this, so you'll just have to take my word for it until maybe someday you're as wise as I am. Ah, don't. No. Uh, you, could, you could provisionally put it on the shelf and say, okay, I'll come back to that when I feel like I'm wise, as wise as she is or he is. You know, but, but don't accept it on that basis. That was one criteria. Another criteria that the Buddha said is it has to fit with experience. If it doesn't match what you see, what you found in your own life, what you see in other people, if it does not match with experience, it's not valid. No matter how much you'd like to believe it, no matter how attractive it seems, if it doesn't fit with your experience, there is a problem. And then the other criteria is that as students, we do have to, we, we, we are exposed to so many different kinds of information that it's hard to know what to accept and what not to. So it is important that when we're exposed to different things, if something has stood the test of time, if it is recognized and acknowledged by many people that you respect, then that's that's what you should start with. You know, you should choose as your primary sources those that those teachings and that information that has been acknowledged and been taught by people you respect for a long time. On the other hand, it too can be flawed. There is, are such a thing as orthodoxies. And any, any teaching, any belief system can become an orthodoxy. And once it becomes an orthodoxy, its purpose is not to present or preserve the truth. Its purpose is to preserve the institution that it, it is the basis of. And its purpose is to sustain the authority of the teachers that teach this. When you encounter an orthodoxy, you'll encounter a whole bunch of teachers that all reinforce each other and say, yeah, this is the way it is. He's right, she's right, yeah, they're right. You can become a part of an orthodoxy. All you have to do is learn the rules and follow them. And once, once everyone else is convinced that you're going there, you're not going to stray from the orthodoxy, then you're a member of it as well. But you want to watch out for that. Lineages, no matter how uh, fabulous and old and revered the lineage. Lineages can pass along misperceptions and misunderstandings every bit as effectively as they can preserve and pass along truths. So you have to so you can use you can use lineage, you can use scriptures, you can use these kinds of things as guidelines. But you have to be very careful. They are the least reliable of all sources of information just because something has been taught for a long time, as the Buddha said. Just because it's found in your religious books, merely on the authority of your teachers and elders, question it. Does it, does it fit with reason? 
Does it fit with experience? And the most important thing is, does it work? It should produce results, and it should produce the kind of results that you want. If you've been following a path for 10 years and uh, you're still not where you think you should be, can't see that you've made much progress, there's probably something wrong with that path. Uh, one thing that I like to say about the Buddhist teachings, if you follow the Buddhist teachings as he taught them, they're good in the beginning, they're good in the middle, and they're good in the end. As soon as you start to practice them, you will experience benefits. And then as you continue to practice them, the benefits will only increase and multiply. And there is, there is an, uh, an ultimate goal in the Buddhist teachings, which we'll get to. And so it's, it, if, you, if what you have received is indeed a valid form of the Buddha Dharma, it's going to be moving you inexorably closer to that goal the entire time. And if it doesn't, then you have every right to, to question it and look for something that's more effective. Of course, it's, you know, I'm not saying that, that some of us, that sometimes responsibility for something not working isn't our own, because obviously it is, and you all know that. But you also know that when you have followed the instructions, when you when you've made the effort, it should be producing some fruit. And if it's not, then time to look further. Time, time to look elsewhere. So, does anybody have any comments or questions at this point? Yes. Well, precisely because I don't think of myself as a skilled teacher, but I sure would like to share this with my friends. I have restricted myself to telling my friends and relatives, gosh, you ought to look into this. You ought to yeah. find a teacher in your neighborhood. And I'm a little bit shocked and hurt when my cousins tell me, Oh, I could never do that. I have too much pain and suffering and anguish and anxiety. And 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 they they just won't. They they won't get up out of their living rooms and 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 quit wringing up their hands and tearing up their hankies and 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 try. They they just won't. And a couple of times I've pointed to people and said. Well, this this has done me some good, and, and here's how. And I'm not going to say a whole lot more than that because, see above, I'm not a teacher, and I can't I can't get anybody motivated. And I'm stunned that they would rather, you know, oh that's all right. I'll just sit here in the dark. It's it's kind of hurts to watch. So what do you do when you say, well, yes, we are the elders of, of the future, and our job is to, to point down to, to our younger cousins, and they say, oh, I can't. What do you do? Well, we have to show them the way. We have to, at their, 
mean, there's different reasons why a person would say, I can't. Um, for example, they might have a look at what, what the information that's available to them as to what this teaching is about. And what they primarily see are the cultural and religious accretions of a different place and time. And, yeah, that's going to definitely make them feel like, no, I can't do that. Um, another thing is that this is, some, this is something that takes time. And how does somebody, somebody may say, I, I can't do that because they can't see themselves making the time to be able to do the kinds of practices and do the kinds of study that are necessary to really help them in the way they needed to be helped. That's where, that's where I think we have to show them the way. It's not enough to tell them, oh, you should go and find somebody to teach you this. Um, you need to be the example. You need to show them how you've managed to do this in your life. And you also need to share with them uh, what, what it's done for you. I get accused of being so peaceful. Yes, that's, that's a very good thing. That's a good way to start. That's a good way to start. If you can get all these people around you who are suffering and in agitation to be annoyed at you for being so peaceful. That yes. is a good start. <laughs> but that's exactly it. They're, they're, you're, I can't do that. You're so peaceful. You just don't understand. Mm -hmm. And yeah, mm -hmm. okay, fine. Uh, I'll keep at it. I, can, I, can, I could conceivably become a nag. It wasn't my first plan. Mm -hmm. I don't think of the Buddha as a nag. Um, but okay. Sure, I could, I could tell them a little more, I guess, but, you know, all I really wanted to do was say, hey, wow, check out meditation, this seems to be valuable. And, and I, I got two responses that polaxed me. One was, oh, I don't have time, I have too much to think about. And the other was, I can't study the Buddha's teachings because he says everything's an illusion and obviously it's not, so he's wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that was so far from my own understanding of how to interpret that that all I could do is just pick my jaw off the floor and say, well, okay then. Well, and, and that that's kind of related to the first uh, the first kind of uh, objection that I described that some people might have. They're going to look at it, and and yeah, if if the first thing that they encounter is, uh, well, according to Buddhism, this is all an illusion. It's all empty. Nothing exists. It it will appear to them as if it's so far away from anything they can understand, but they're not going to give it another minute of their time. And I don't blame them, right? Um, so, so that's got to change. And 
the way that that's going to change is as when when this teaching stops being presented in these old forms. When it starts being presented in a form that's appropriate to our ways of thinking and understanding. That's the job that lies ahead of us. I don't have the answer for you. But what I want to do is to guide you through what the Buddha was trying to get across so that we can all work together to get to that place of being able to get it across. It's like, wow, we've discovered the most fabulous thing in the world. We want to share it. But if we really want to share it, we've, we've got to find a way to do it effectively. Yeah? Um, I tried with my sister to get her interested in it because she's doing a lot of suffering. And I found out that she's afraid. She has a lot of fear. It is something she doesn't understand. It's changed me. It's changed me for the better. My life is a whole lot better. And she sees that. She sees me not suffering like she is, and she doesn't like it. She doesn't like it. She likes the old me better. Misery loves company. Yes. So my big thing was running up against fear. I'd like to ask a question. Um, you've made some statements here about what we're going to experience and pick up and learn in the next couple of days <clears throat> that sound to me as though these are these should be self-evident. If they were presented in some way, um, they should be. It should be something we could figure out for ourselves. And in fact, you said if you can't figure it out for yourself, then you've got it wrong, or you're going down the wrong path. Yes, that's right. So my question basically is: Does this information is it really self-evident, or does it have to be brought to us through a teacher like yourself? Do we have to be educated? certain level before we can understand it? Or what? Well, okay, the, the question is, to say that this is self-evident that we can understand it by ourselves, does that mean that, that anybody without any guidance or, or teaching can take this information and penetrate it? Uh, or is some kind of teacher required? Yes, some kind of teaching is required. Um, basically, the world of science is about things that you might describe as self-evident, but they're only self-evident if you have if you have the right tools and if you have the right prior knowledge to approach the situation with. And that's the thing. We when we grow up and we go to high school, we take science courses and then we learn more science in the university and little bits and pieces of science come at us all of the time. And so for the average person in our society, there are a lot of things that would be totally impenetrable to somebody from, say, the 16th century that we would probably say, well, yeah, that's self-evident. It's because we have that level of prior knowledge that we know how to look at it, we know how to understand it. And, of course, there are deeper levels of understanding that don't come that easily, but if we have the right tools and the right training, you know, if you have the right instruments, the microscopes and the telescopes and the, uh, whatever else, then they too become self-evident. Right? Well, this has been around for 2,500 years, right? Yeah. 
So why does it take further education today, 2,500 years away, to understand something that was self-evident 2,500 years ago? Well, well, now this we're not saying that it was self-evident to everybody 2,500 years ago, and it's not self-evident today. Okay. As a matter of fact, I think. Uh, what I hope you'll, you will find yourself as we go through this over the course of the weekend is that we are in a much, much better position to understand these ideas than were the people that the Buddha was talking to in his time. We really have a great head start on them. They will be more self-evident to us. But it does require, just as with the examples of scientific understanding, there's a certain amount of prior knowledge and then certain instruments that are required. So you need, you need to have somebody to teach you or you need to read or listen or whatever to get that prior knowledge that allows you to put together the pieces of information that you already have in such a way that it allows you to see something that you didn't see before. So you do need the teaching and you do need the prior knowledge. And the same thing is true of the instrument. Your, your intellect and that kind of understanding is only going to take you to a certain place. And you can't get any farther. That's sort of like without microscopes and telescopes and everything else. You're only going to achieve, you know, no matter how good the teaching you receive, you're not going to achieve the same depth of understanding of the physical world without the instruments to explore it. And that's where the meditation comes. Meditation provides you with instruments to see and understand things that otherwise the chances are you would never understand. But of course the instrument you're using is your mind and you're making it into a different kind of instrument through the training that you do. But this, this is a really important part of this whole thing. We can talk about the Dharma and we can study it and we can understand it and we can take the ideas, we can try them out in our life, and we say, yeah, this is true, yeah, that's true. And we can build up all of the necessary background of understanding at the intellectual level. That will get us, you know, good halfway, two-thirds of the way along the path. But if we want to get to the end, uh, and, 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 and actually if we want to even get two-thirds of the way along the path much more quickly, what we need is we need to have the instrument that's going to allow us to see things that we can't otherwise see, to penetrate the veil of illusion. It's, not, it's, it's, it's really good for somebody to have somebody point out to you that this isn't really the way it appears to be, and if you'll notice this and if you'll notice that, you'll realize it couldn't really be the way it appears to be. That's all fine and good. But you're not going to see it for the illusion it is until... You, you penetrate it and you have that direct experience that, wow, this, this is not what I thought at all. You know, it's what I call the uh, 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 Toto phenomenon. Uh, um, oh, gee, my memory just lapsed. Uh, what's the little girl's name that I carried away? In the, Dorothy, yeah. Yeah, Dorothy's there, totally intimidated by Oz, the booming voice, and everything else, you know. And... Uh, then Toto pulls the curtain aside and... <laughs>
once once you've seen what's on the other side of the veil, it makes it makes a difference that nothing else can. That's and that's where the meditation comes in. You need to have the instrument available to you, which is a mind. Basically, it's it's a mind with uh, stable attention and with powerful mindfulness. And, and if you have these, and then you use that mind in the right way, you, you're going to have an experience called insight. And insight is where you see in a, in a very direct way the, the underlying truth behind the things that you've already learned intellectually. And the more prepared your mind is, the easier it is for you to see those things. You know, if you know what you're looking for, you're likely to discover it far more quickly than if you have no idea what you're looking for, but you're just looking. But, you know, the insights, through a combination of, of understanding, understanding the Dharma at intellectual level, and through meditation and acquiring the skills and abilities to see things as they really are, then th this is the combination that you need. Now, in our culture, you know, I, meditation has really caught on. The rest of the Dharma, not so much. There's three parts to the Dharma. Um, you know, the, the Eightfold Path is divided up into wisdom, virtue, and meditation. Those are the three parts. And meditation is caught on in a big way. And... and Western culture. Um, that's probably why most of you are here. Some of you may also be here because you have an interest in the in the wisdom and virtue teachings. But I'd be willing to make a bet that it wasn't always the case, and more than anything else, it was probably meditation that brought you uh, in this direction to begin with. And that's what's being uh, that's being what's being embraced very strongly. We are a secular and scientific culture. Meditation is a fabulous tool. We can see that it produces all kinds of beneficial results for people. Um, there, uh, meditation is being uh, it, it's a, a a valid topic of study for. Uh, masters and PhD theses, and uh, there are university professors whose whole career is involved with doing research that uh, is, is based on meditation. There's things like mindfulness-based stress reduction and other methods like that that have been developed and are being presented in many different for formats, taught widely, you know, help people with all kinds of different problems. We've embraced that part of the Dharma I'm, I'm not talking about we in this room. I mean, we, we as a culture have embraced that part of the Dharma really, really strongly. But the wisdom and virtue aspects rarely get talked about except within the religious, con religious context. And that's a big problem. That's a big mistake. That's one of the things we really got to turn around. Because all you can do, all of meditation that you want, but what you're going to get from it is going to be limited to what I would actually describe as the incidental benefits of meditation. They're not what meditation is really about. Meditation is really about training your mind in such a way that you can 
penetrate and understand the true nature of reality. That's what it's really about. And that's going to make such a gigantic difference to you. Whereas just meditating so that you become more aware when your old programming comes up so that you can choose whether to act on it or not and so on and so forth, that's all wonderful. But, you know, you'll spend a whole lifetime, you could spend hundreds of years trying to undo all the conditioning you acquired in the first 20 years of your life and not get it done. So there's much greater potential. Something is much more powerful. It goes way beyond that. And that's, that's really what this Dharma has to offer. And th there is there is the risk that we could just become great meditators and do really well at overcoming our OCD and our PTSD, things like that, but never even approach what the true potential is of this Buddha Dharma. So that's why we, that's why we, those of us in this room, need to penetrate it deeply. We need to discern what, what are unnecessary trappings, what is the core, how can the core be represented in such a way that your cousin who's miserable and suffering can see that this is something that uh, she could stand to learn more about. She or he could stand to learn more about. Yes? Do you think it's possible to become extremely proficient in meditation, but you know, continue to commit fundamentally non-virtuous acts and really be a non-virtuous person and yet still be highly proficient in meditation or are you just deceiving yourself? Or not, to, I, not to be highly proficient. Well, depending on what you call highly proficient, but okay. in the progress of meditation, there's a certain point that you reach where, you know, if, if, you, if you aren't leading a virtuous life, if you haven't if you haven't purified your mind of the major defilements, you're not going to go any further. You're going to get to that point and that's it. Now there is there is kind of a caveat there. It there are there are some people with certain kinds of personality disorders that can engage in in very unwholesome acts and seem to carry no residue of that with them. And so um, I hold out the possibility that there are people who could become extremely adept at meditation even though they are very non-virtuous uh, and as a matter of fact just the opposite. There's a, a fellow by the name of William Hamilton that wrote a book. I don't even know if it's in print anymore. It's a marvelous book. I recommend it to you if you get a chance to have a look at it. It's called Saints and Psychopaths. <laughs> Saints and Psychopaths. And uh, what he's dealing with there, I, th I think, is, is, this sense, is the same thing that I'm talking about, the sense that I have, that there are certain kinds of personality disorders which can allow a person to acquire tremendous abilities and as a result of that develop great charisma uh, which just puts them in a better, better position than ever to exploit other people. <laughs> so, 
But for most of us, for most of us, to the degree that we haven't dealt with the virtue component, our meditation is going to progress just fine up to a certain point, and then it's going to get stuck, and it's not going to go much past that. As a matter of fact, it doesn't just get stuck, it gets very uncomfortable. When you, uh, when you reach a certain point in your meditation practice, when, uh, when joy and happiness are trying to arise, and they're being obstructed because in your mind is all this residue of, of the things that you've done that you shouldn't or didn't do that you should have, and so on and so forth, and the worry and the agitation and the remorse and everything else from that, then there's this huge amount of energy that's trying to well up, which if it were able to, would launch you into, into a state of great joy and happiness. But because it can, it makes you miserable. It makes your body hurt, makes you break out and sweat, makes you jerk and twitch. And, you know, it's not very pleasant. So if you reach that point, you know what to do. You just need to clean up the air and purify your mind a bit, and then you'll go right on ahead. Would you have a little follow-up question? Would you say, of course, the West has seen teachers, spiritual teachers that have issues with substance abuse mm -hmm. or with um, sexual misconduct. So would you say in working with a teacher that has or have, has an issue like that, that um, the teaching is suspect because of the issue with the substance abuse or the sexual uh, shenanigans? Well, you know, I think of that in exactly the same way. Do I want to take a course in shop safety from a guy that's cut all his fingers off? <laughs> 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 well, and they can't. And, and that, is, that is true. I mean, the thing is, what, what happens to people uh, is, is, yes, they, they are they're on a spiritual path, and they achieve a certain level, and then for some reason or other they get sidetracked. And those same old uh, lusts and aversions that we all have come to the fore. Uh, so this is this is one of the dangers of this is one of the dangers of the spiritual path. You get to a certain point, and what you have gained becomes a means to uh, to pursue material wealth and sexual gratification and have people in adulation sitting around and worshiping you, and that's a big mistake. Um, Usually catches up with a person that's very traumatic. You know, we heard of all the what happened at the Zen Center and here and there and all these other places. That doesn't mean that that person can't get back on track, and that doesn't mean that person kind of learned something very, very profound. But um, still, you know, you <laughs> you'd want to make sure that they had got back on track and they had, <laughs> had learned the lesson. You know. Yeah. Well, I, I think this is approaching it from a little different direction that I had read. Uh, there are no enlightened beings, there are only enlightened moments. And so the idea is to increase the enlightened moments. So, um, anyway, I, I just think that is kind of the, the human condition. Yes, it, it is. Actually, I have a, a very similar saying that, that I like, which is there are no enlightened 
person is only enlightened behavior. Yeah. Well, I'm just interested in um, what do you think about like Pema Children's um, teacher who was uh, is it Trumpa Rinpoche who was really a drunkard and you know um, he um, um, he has millions of followers you know and you know their thing is well you know uh, yeah he did that but his message was well, the question for any of you who couldn't hear is, uh, what do I think of someone like Chogun Trungpa, um, who, who was a drunkard, who died of uh, liver failure because of excessive alcohol consumption? who caused very large numbers of people very severe psychological trauma in the course of his life, who engaged in many different forms of sexual misconduct uh, and in ways that were injurious to other people. Yet in spite of all that, he's left this tremendous legacy. There are huge numbers of people that have learned about the Dharma, have learned about practices, who have made great progress themselves on their spiritual path. And one example you mentioned was Pima Chodron, who uh, is, is a person that has helped. She's, she's written books, she gives talks, she's provided guidance, she's helped many people. So, well, what, I'd have to put it back to you. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> no, I asked you. <laughs> Are you saying, well, I don't know what to think of that? Is that what yeah, I don't know, because what I hear, I hear you saying that, and then, you know, and then I hear this other, you know, philosophy, belief, or whatever, and it's confusing. And, yeah, I'm asking, what, what's your opinion of that? Okay, well, it was, I saw another hand. I'm going to hear from some other people before I end it myself. Well, Pema Chodron, just been, usually early on in most of her work, uh, her writings, she speaks about how the path is not up, up, up to the top of the mountain, but down, down, down to the depths, and to use those deep and dark uh, experiences in life as our our, uh, our, uh, the arrow to penetrate reality, and he may have been um, using the uh, dark um, uh, behaviors to, um, to find that depth. I, I don't know that that's so, but that's, you know, she speaks about that quite eloquently. And um, so that's, a, that's a, a, a way of practice. Well, oh, go ahead. And, and it isn't true that there are thousands and thousands of people who are on. That's just not true. I think that the people who studied the Trump Rinpoche took responsibility for entering the Vajra on the path and took it very seriously. And the people who chose to get involved with him as a lover chose to. It really was a choice. 
you think so? I do. You, let, you don't think he used his power? No. She was there. She was a student and she was there. Well, I, I, I'm sorry, but I mean, any, any teacher that's ever gotten sexually involved with a student would say, well, they did it by their own choice. I mean, even if, if they're an algebra teacher, they always say that. So I, I, that doesn't carry much weight. And maybe thousands and thousands is, is, is more than accurate, but there are accounts of enough hundreds of people that have been injured in different ways to add up to well over a thousand. I mean, this, this is the kind of stuff that people have been upset about enough to put on the internet and things like that. And injured in many different ways, not just because of his sexual behavior, but uh, people who were injured psychologically because of the way he uh, treated them or addressed them in front of others, and you know, all kinds of situations. But anyway, that's so. I, I, I don't think you can write off the problem. You cannot write off the question that's been asked here. He engaged in a lot of behavior that was harmful to a lot of people. And so now the question we're asking here is, how does that weigh against the good that he seems to have done as well? Why, why do we continually want to make our teachers into deities? You know, I mean, what, and then when they when they don't live up to our expectations, we become so disappointed. You know, the Dharma, in my mind, is about your own thinking, the way your mind works, and if your teacher. Um, isn't filling that need, but find another teacher. Plenty of them. I, I agree with you. and This is a bit of a digression. I want to come back to you. But when the Buddha was dying, they wanted to know, well, who's going to take over the Sangha? Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to be the head honcho? Who's going to, be, who's going to teach us? And he said, you don't need a teacher. He said, we don't need anybody in charge. Of course, they didn't follow that instruction. They went ahead and created hierarchical structures. And in certain cultures, Buddhism developed into this really, well, this whole guru uh, yoga thing happened. So they ignored what the Buddha said. But he said, let the Dharma be the teacher. Let the Sangha be the teacher. You don't need a teacher. And in this handout that I gave you, one part of it, Lama Surya Das uh, discusses the directions that he sees Buddhism going in the West. And one of them I think is really important is Western culture is far more egalitarian. Tibetans can engage in guru worship without getting mired in the kind of problems that Westerners do. Because Westerners are not used to it. Our culture, even though it's hierarchical, is far more egalitarian than any of these Eastern cultures. So we haven't learned to function in those kinds of power imbalances the way that they have. So, no, we, sh we, don't, need, we don't need to make our, our, our teachers into gurus, our gurus into gods. Not only do we not need to, but it would be a really serious mistake if we did. I mean, to the degree that we are doing that already, all kinds of things are happening that are regrettable and unfortunate. And I think Western, modern Western Buddhism is going to be 
very egalitarian, and uh, I think those kinds of abuses will be will, will be less common as we become more egalitarian. You know, maybe some people left and, and never studied the Dharma again or something, but um, I, I, you know, I, I get, I don't know, it feels like a rut to mm -hmm. me that it's very easy for Westerners to, to just slip right into, you know, hearing the Dharma teachings as, um, you know, good and bad and do this and don't do that and right and wrong and there we go again. Yeah. <laughs> so that's going to be Yeah. <clears throat> well, let's, let's look at this in a little different way. Now, first of all, we always have to be very, very careful when we start judging somebody else. And this, you're saying Westerners are very prone to dualistic thinking. I just say we're very prone to be judgmental. Um, and, and part of what the Dharma teaches us is that uh, we need to stop doing that. But that in itself is being unwholesome. Which doesn't mean that we can't be discerning and discriminating. And you know, which is that, it, it doesn't mean that we're bad if we do it. Because there we go again. It, it doesn't mean we're bad if we if we find ourselves judgmental or dualistic, you know. Uh, no, that's right. We have to start where we are. And if we want to change, uh, we have to we have to come from where we are. We've got to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. So it won't do any good to beat ourselves up for being judgmental, but to realize we're being judgmental when we are, or even to realize we have been judgmental after the fact, is a big step forward. And, and that's where we've got to go. But yeah. The idea of judging people, looking for black and white, simple explanations, things like this. This is this is something that we would we would do better to not be so caught up in. But on the other hand, there is this real situation that we don't need to judge Trumpa. 
but we can look at the things that happen and we can learn from them and we can understand. There is no doubt that he did harm to some people and there's no doubt that he benefited other people. And those are facts. Um, we could get into trying to tally them up and say, well, did he benefit more people than he harmed? But does that make sense? You know, uh, well, of course it doesn't. It, because it's not just the number, it's the kind of impact that he had. And we're not in a position to judge that anyway. When we start talking about virtue, one of the things, as the Buddha taught it, one of the things that we're going to see is that anything that anybody does has two components to it. One is the consequences that it brings about, like the kind of impact it has on somebody else, benefiting or harming them. But it has this other component, which reflects back on themselves. And so we can, well, we already know that people can do good things for bad reasons and bad things for good reasons. And people can do bad things that produce good results and good things that produce bad results. The situation is complicated. Uh, and the same thing is true that unwholesome actions in terms of their effects on other people can uh, have a different kind of effect on the person that's performing them, and vice versa. This is something we'll get into in a little more detail over the weekend. But I don't think any of us would have any trouble agreeing that um, even if somebody's helping a lot of other people, it doesn't justify the harm that they would cause to another group. And therefore, without judging Trumpa, if we're looking ahead, we would like somehow not to find ourselves encountering that kind of situation over and over again, right? That's what's important. Yeah. Well, please cut me off here. This is going to take way too long. But I have to put what you're saying in the context that comes perilously close to blaming the victim because I have studied cults. I have studied people that get inducted into Christian cults. I have studied all of this did, did I say something that sounded like to you like it was blaming the victim? No, I'm oh. about to. Oh, you're about to. I'm about oh, to. Okay. So I'm 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 I'm, I'm kind of puffed up and sideways and dancing on my toes because I, I really don't want to, but here it comes. <laughs> uh, if, if you're, if, there is a, it's, it's really unfortunate when, when people get suckered in because they, they're, they have ideals and they're, but if, if you, there are people that have a bend of mind where you can get inducted into the cult of Mickey Mouse. And Mickey Mouse is it, man. Mickey Mouse has the wisdom and you can get it. And I have watched people get glassy-eyed with that and and derive amazing things from stuff that I would thought I would have thought was pretty shallow. And then they go down the road a couple of years and 
and get hurt and get disillusioned and leave the cult and are at sea and need therapy to figure out how to rebuild their own integrity. And I would very much like to know how the Dharma can approach these people that, at least from my perspective, they looked kind of weak-willed when they walked in if, if they could have fallen for the cult of Mickey Mouse. There's, I don't want to blame the victim because there is a terrible dynamic of too much power with, with teachers. That, that can happen too. But sometimes there are just people that they fell for a good joke and it, it, it hurt them. And what would the Dharma do with people that are that, they, they still need their integrity. They, still, they need to have become stronger before they fall for another one. Well, this is one of the things that we can talk about uh, over the course of the weekend. What we need to do first is to create the foundation because there's certain principles that we'll use to be able to look at those situations and those questions and come up with answers. Mm -hmm. That's the whole, you know, that, that's what this Dharma is all about. It's, it's taking things that we can all know and understand and validate from our own experience and using them as, as principles to guide us in, in our thinking and in our interpretation so that, uh, so that we can get where we need to be, so that we can help other people get where they need to be, so that we can understand what's really happening around us. But we, we need the foundation first. So it would be premature to get into that now. Related to that, um, I would like to hear uh, some comments that you might have about the difference between not judging and simply accepting on faith. The not judge, what, could you give me an example? I mean, there's well, many different things. When, when you say be non-judgmental, to me, that means don't form an opinion about whatever it is you're dealing with, person, thing, situation. You're, you're just trying to accept it as it is, as it's being presented to you. And the other aspect that I ask about is accepting things on faith, which is what you have to do in many cases in many religions. You run across something that doesn't make any sense, but you're obligated to accept it on faith if you're going to be a member of that particular group. I'm not real good at accepting things on faith. Uh, and so what I'm curious about is how do you stop being judgmental without accepting something that you don't understand yet? Well, I, I, I see those as being uh, very different things. Maybe I can put, maybe I can express that. Okay, we can be non-judgmental and still be quite discerning and discriminating. We can still see clearly. Uh, you know, we don't need to judge Trungpa as a person, for example, in order to see uh, and, and, and discern clearly that some of the things he did are things that, that we would like not to see repeated, but other things that he did uh, we, we are happy that they happen and they produce the result. That's being discerning without needing to be judgmental. Well, what if I'm one of the 
gullible people that Chris is well, happy let, let me let me go on. It's when somebody comes along and uses the crazy wisdom argument and says, well, you don't understand Trunkpa because he was a fully enlightened being and what he was doing was practicing crazy wisdom. And uh, you've got to take it on faith that those people that you think he hurt, he was really doing exactly what they needed. And they benefit just because you can't see it. Just because you think he harmed them, they still benefited. And, and so, now that's, that's where the faith thing gets in, and that's where suspending, uh, suspending plain old everyday intelligence and common sense gets in. Why on earth should I, why on earth should I take on faith the idea that somebody that seems to have been injured wasn't really injured, it was done for their own good, they needed it. Why? Yeah, why? Well, there's no reason at all. Now, if, if I had to believe that to be a part of a, a, a group, you know, you talk about, yeah, this, this is the way things work. This is the way, you know, if you want to belong to my religion, then you have to believe in this and this and this and this. If you want to be a part of a group badly enough to suspend your intellectual faculties to that degree, boy, you better look at why that's so important to you. You've got a problem. And that's what she's talking about. This people. You know, they are damaged already, and they are vulnerable because of that. I don't know if that addressed what you were um, really trying to get at or not. But. Well, I, I, it seems to me that in order to be discerning, you have to have a certain level of understanding about what it is you're trying to discern. Yeah, that's right. So. When I stop being judgmental and I try to be discerning, that implies that I know enough to be discerning. What if I'm not? Then you're going to make mistakes. Well, I could figure that one out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I liked the most about reading about the Buddha and Buddhism was exactly what he said about don't believe anything I say. Mm -hmm. Test it for yourself. Yeah. And if if you can confirm it for yourself, then you believe it. Discernment to me, I mean, I look at it like one of the precepts we take when we take refuge is to hurt no sentient being, to do nothing to harm another. So to me, if someone does something to harm someone and the person is harmed, then that behavior, to me, should be avoided. Get, getting rid of the cultural stuff to the pure truth. 
you know. Because I'm sure back in, you know, India and China, that there must have been some really wacko teachers too, and they <laughs> still the church survived. Yes. So anyway, what I see happening in this discussion is that it's becoming clear that there's all sorts of questions that are rather difficult to answer and that people can form different opinions on and things aren't very clear. And what we need is something is, what we need are some operating principles that we can all agree on and validate for ourselves. And we don't have to take on faith. And we don't have to take anybody else's word for it. And then we can use those as a guide to find for ourselves the answers that we need to all of these kinds of questions. And that's really what, that's what the wisdom teachings offer. Um, the Four Noble Truths, the Three Characteristics, uh, the Operation of Karma. These these are things that we can explore together. We can look at the principles that they're based on and see if we can agree with the Buddha that these that the underlying principles agree with uh, reason and experience and make sense and then see if out of that we can uh, we can follow the unfolding of a system that's actually useful to us that will give us the kind of guidance that we need and then from there we can explore some of the other things that come in the package with us there are a lot of religious beliefs that have arrived onshore along with the Buddha Dharma. And so we can look at those and decide what do we want to do with those? How do we want to use those? And don't think that we can just set all religious beliefs aside because even if you consider yourself an atheist, atheism is a religion. You know? Better to be a, an agnostic, <laughs> open to exploring different possibilities. And everything that we find in religions, it's there for a reason. It serves some kind of a purpose. And um, even if the purpose it serves now isn't all that great, there was some point in time when it, it, the purpose it served uh, was something really useful. Otherwise, it wouldn't have survived. Otherwise, it wouldn't have become a part of that cultural system of beliefs. So that's what I want to do with you over the course of the weekend. Is let's, let's, let's look at this. Let's look at what the Buddha taught. And we're going to try to distinguish between what was unique to the Buddha that he taught and what really belongs to other systems of thought other cultural beliefs, other religions, and see if we can make the distinction between them. And it's not that our idea is, as I say, that we're going to pare everything away and we're just going to take this 
beer poured stuff and throw the rest in the trash. We're going to look at the rest and we're going to see what might and might not serve us. What suits our times and our cultures uh, and, and how, how might we best make use of that. And it may be that we decide to throw it all away. And if we do, that's fine. But let us not fool ourselves that we aren't going to be interjecting our own beliefs that are equally religious in nature at the same time, because we are. You know, I said meditation has been uh, adopted in the secular scientific community as a methodology for psychotherapy and, and all these kinds of things. That is a religion. If anything, at this moment, Buddhism is being assimilated into the Western religion of scientism. But we have to ask ourselves, if we want that to continue in that direction, and actually what I'm going to suggest to you as we go along is that we don't, because we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater if we do. That that in the wisdom teachings and the virtue teachings, they're, they're really important. We have to have them. And maybe what we should talk a little bit about just in the last few minutes we have together tonight is what is the goal of all of this? I mean, the ultimate goal. And I'm sure that you've all taken up meditation because you felt it could benefit you personally in your life. And probably all of you who have pursued it for any period of time have done so because, in fact, it has done that. It's produced benefits and rewards. So let me just ask you, though, is that, is that as far as your interest in meditation goes, the kinds of benefits and rewards that you have that you have realized so far from the practice? Yes? To create a compassionate society? This is one, I think this is an outcome, I'm glad you said that. This is something that is very important to us as Westerners. We're not, we're not satisfied with just sitting in our little cave and solving all of our personal problems. We, we want this, you know, socially engaged Buddhism, all of these ideas, we want this to extend out to the community at large. As a matter of fact, most of us probably want this to, to be a tool for righting the wrongs of the world at large. So, yeah, that's one thing we want. What else do we want? I've settled just for being able to explain this coherently and meaningfully to my family. Well, I'm going to do my best to to uh, put it in such a way that you can do that. I I, I really want to. I really that that's what I'm going to. What about the idea of what is this awakening stuff anyway? 
Awakening from what to what? Why? Go ahead. Um, awakening from suffering to reality? <clears throat> yes. Our situation is that life isn't truly satisfying the way it is. We can, we can see that things could be better. Um, so, now, this gets ahead into what we're going to talk about tomorrow, but that's what the Buddha said. It's because because you don't see things as they really are, because you're trapped in a delusion, that you're creating suffering for yourself and the people around you. So what you're awakening, what you would be awakening from is that delusion, that illusion. What would that feel like, do you think? From anything you've heard or read or anything else, what would it be like to achieve that? Couldn't you view enlightenment as the teaching of enlightenment as a metaphor uh, for, for the change that occurs through meditation, uh, increased concentration, clarity, equanimity, um, better sleep, less angry, able to get over things? Yeah, but see what you're saying, less angry, but still angry. Sleep better, but not all that good. <laughs> I mean, this is what meditation's already giving us. We're already sleeping better and less angry. Yeah, and more yeah. Right. And that's my question. What is what what's beyond that? Is there anything beyond that? Is that a pipe dream? Well, is, is that the ability to be present in in the present moment? Uh, Maybe there's not. I mean, I see reality as the stick and enlightenment as the carrot. Mm -hmm. And uh, why would I want to be between a stick and a carrot? You know, I'm, just, I'm already there. You know? <laughs> You're already there. Yeah. Yes. Uh, for me, it's creating a harmonious environment in the universe. Well, see, that, that's a part of of having less suffering and more happiness in your life is that there's more harmony with the people around you. Yeah. And more engagement. More engagement. Yeah. Breaking the cycle of suffering. Yeah, breaking the cycle of suffering. Really what the promise is here. Well, let's not pussyfoot around. <laughs> the promise is that you can completely overcome all suffering and not have any more suffering at all. And I'll bet you that's hard to believe. You like the idea, but it's hard to believe that such a thing is possible. Right? Cut that right. Yeah. And what you would like to be is happy all the time, and to be happy in a way that wasn't dependent upon what was happening around you. It didn't come and go when different kinds of things happened, right? And it's the same thing. 
too good to be true. It sounds too good to be true. But is it too good to be true? Compassion. Um, Okay, the idea, what an enlightened person or an awake, awakened person, what is it like to be an awakened person? You experience no more suffering. You are happy, and your happiness doesn't depend on external circumstances. You have no desire and aversion, so why do you do anything? Because you're filled with compassion, and because the wisdom you have provides life and pro provides acting out of compassion with all of the meaning that you ever need to motivate you to do what you do. Isn't this what you really want? You want to be free from suffering, you want to be happy, you want to have a meaningful life, you want things to make sense to you, you want to understand why things are the way they are. That is the promise. That is the promise. And that's part of what we have to look at. Because the Buddha didn't, if we look at the Buddha Dharma, it's not just a promise that if you meditate, keep the precepts, do this and do that, you're gonna, everything's gonna be a bit better than it has been. That's not the promise. <laughs> Although he did say, and I'll say it too, as soon as you start, things will get better, and they'll keep getting better unceasingly. But that isn't the ultimate promise. He's actually saying what you really want is attainable. And that's, so that's something we want to look at this and, and to keep in mind. And we need to ask ourselves, okay, was this the Buddha's religious add-on? Have you ever wondered that? Is this whole thing about awakening and lightning? Is this just, is this just a make-believe fancy carrot that's put out there? To, you know, give us, give us some reason to go ahead and give this a shot. And it's all right to make it up and say there is such a thing because we're going to get a lot of benefit if we do this anyway. Have you ever thought that about the Dharma? <laughs> I'm not going to drive us all crazy. I, 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 we're going to have to find out what's wrong with this, but <laughs> I'll try to speak out. So, 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 so tell me, how many of you have ever had that thought? A lot of you really believe that this is true. Okay, so for those of you who believe that this really is possible, how many of you thought you were going to make it in this lifetime? <laughs> Based on everything that you have suggested about Toto pulling back the curtain, it's 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 a discontinuity. Does enlightenment? What, what does it feel like? I wonder if it requires a complete reorganization of our whole perception, so that we like don't even perceive the world like we used to. It, it, it just is is completely discontinuous, and that makes me feel like. Am I even going to be from this planet anymore? <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you are completely free from suffering, if you are happy and nothing can change that, 
if you are filled with compassion, life has meaning, and you have wisdom, do you care? <laughs> okay, but will blue still be blue? Will blue still be blue? Will you care? Well, blue always changes. If, if, if we if we go with what's being offered to us, whatever blue is, it's going to be way better than it ever was. Before. <laughs> the master told us you didn't say you said free of suffering, but you didn't say free of pain. Isn't that's that that's, that's true, yeah. So we, we, that's one of the very first distinctions we'll make. That's one of the very first aspects of the Buddhist teaching is the difference between pain and suffering. Thank you. Um, yeah. Yes? I know that we're going to cover the wisdom and, and virtue, which I think is interwoven with meditation because we need, in my opinion, the principle of living. We need principles to live by and without those we can't really, I don't see that we can really attain, as you were saying in a way, you can't really get too far. You can go for a while, but you can't. And, and, and if other people around you are suffering, it's hard to maintain your own sense. So we want everyone to come along. It's like we're on the Ponderosa, and you know we're just fighting all this injustice way beyond the ranch boundaries. We don't have boundaries. So, yep, that's right. So the wisdom and virtue is of great interest to me. Well, <clears throat> principles to live by. Yes, and these three work together. And together, they are incredibly powerful. By themselves, they're great. They're great by themselves. But by themselves, they can't achieve anything like what they do together. Meditation by itself is going to make your life better. It will help you with your OCD and your PTSD and your ABCs and your XYZs. <laughs> it's going to make you sleep better and get along better with folks at work and everything else. Meditation by itself will do that. It won't give you what we were just talking about. If you, the practice of virtue is going to make you into somebody who feels really good about themselves, who everybody around them really feels good about, who has a lot of good things happen to them, because that's what happens when you are a, a, a truly virtuous person in the world. The world rewards you. But it's not going to give you what we talked about. And the practice of, of wisdom study will provide you an enormous degree of intellectual satisfaction. And it will allow you to go through the suffering of your days with this feeling like, well, at least I've got, at least I know what's happening, why this is happening, and so on and so forth. But it's not going to get you what we were talking about. It's when the three come together. You know, they're like a tripod. They support each other. And the three together do make it possible, what we're talking about. The, probably the main reason, and that not just people in this room or people in this country, but people in many Buddhist countries have come to, uh, in one way or another, doubt the goal the purpose, the ultimate end that the Buddha promised, 
is because they haven't put all three parts together. And when I say they've doubted it, there's different ways of doubting it. Then there is a belief that, believe me, the Buddha never had, that it takes many lifetimes to become awakened. Buddha diverged very, very strongly from other teachers and other peoples that he studied and practiced with. When he said, this can be achieved by anyone in this lifetime if they do this. And he didn't say 10,000 lifetimes. He didn't say make lots of merit and donate to the temple and you come back as a monk and then maybe if you're lucky. He didn't say any of those things. He said, this is the path. And, it, 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 and, and this is the path. If you follow this path, you will reach the end of it, you know, provided you, you don't die first, but you know, you'll, you'll reach the end of it. <laughs> and uh, so we have a world full, what we have in the history of Buddhism is a lot of people who achieved the goal. If that weren't true, then we, then we could question this and say, okay, Buddha knew he needed some kind of carrot to get people to do this and it'd be good for them, so it's all right to give them a make-believe carrot. Except that what he promised has been realized by many, many people since then. And if that weren't true, then, yeah, we, there'd be good reason to, to doubt. But it has. Which, when we, if, if we have the chance to continue with this together beyond this weekend, we can look at the fact that, that the Buddha Dharma has continued to evolve. Because that one particular person who set it all in motion, his teaching led other people to achieve the same realizations. And so there have been many others who have been able to add to, to expand upon, to further develop uh, those teachings. Buddhism evolves. Buddhism doesn't just get dressed up in different religious clothing. Within each religion, it also evolves. It becomes more powerful. Uh, it becomes, in, in many ways, more, more clear. So, at the same time, though, something, something happened that was unfortunate. In the time of the Buddha, Many people listened to his teaching, and many people achieved at least the first stage of awakening, but very many people achieved the highest stage of awakening. But then somehow or another, over the passage of time, we've had a thing where most people in most Buddhist countries don't really believe it's a possibility for them in their lifetime. That's a sad and unfortunate thing. So part of what we have to do, not just, not just root out the Buddha Dharma itself and make it our own, but we've also got to look at it closely enough so that we can figure out where did it get off track? How did it ever get so far off track that somebody could honestly, and since somebody who understood this Dharma through lots of study and practice could sincerely say, well, oh, it could take 10,000 lifetimes. 